who are we? We've got to recover that and we will not do so unless we reclaim the fundamental story of creation, redemption, salvation. Dr. Andrew Swafford is professor of theology at Benedictine College. He's a national speaker on a variety of topics and the co-author of a new book entitled A Catholic Guide to the Old Testament. He's also the author of numerous other books on theology and living the Catholic faith. Andrew holds a doctorate in sacred theology and a master's degree in Old Testament and Semitic languages. Listen in as we discuss the importance of studying the Old Testament, the Judaic roots of Christianity, and lessons from sacred scripture for our everyday life. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America, one conversation at a time. From our studios in Atchison, Kansas, these are the Benedictine Dialogues. Well, Andrew, welcome to the Benedictine Dialogues, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, so you've got this new book uh, that you just co-authored, just released, A Catholic Guide to the Old Testament. Uh, maybe just get us started. Tell us a little bit about the impetus behind it and, and what inspired you to, to do all the research and writing. You know, there's a lot of Catholics, uh, it always has been, but especially the last 20 years, like really excited about the Bible, about sacred scripture. Um, you know, you had apologetics was so popular. Carl Keating, the mid-90s, you know, Scott Hahn and... Uh, it really feels like Father Mike's podcast, The Bible in a Year, that, that there's real hunger for sacred scripture. Uh, Jeff Cavins and I uh, worked on the, the uh, Great Adventure of the Catholic Bible together. Uh, 2018, we did the Romans Bible study with Ascension and then the Hebrews Bible study with Ascension. So that's kind of what led to this. Uh, and we got a good team and just kind of making, um, I think what's unique about this book is that it's, it's thorough. Uh, it's, it's almost 500 pages. There's chapters on every book of the Old Testament, but it's also really accessible. Uh, so it's, it's kind of, um, it, it, it delivers a lot, I mean, charts and calendars and feast days and, you know, all the, all the data is there. Uh, but it's also not overwhelming uh, in terms of like a graduate textbook might be with, you know, footnotes everywhere and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, we're really excited. It just came out um, this past summer. That's awesome. Yeah, one thing I noticed, too, with, with Catholics, uh, at least from my experience, we, we know the New Testament uh, extremely well. And then our Old Testament sometimes is lagging behind. Right. So it seems to me like this kind of a resource is really, really uh, important, right? It, one of my favorite things about it is, I mean, there's, you know, each chapter on uh, every book of the Old Testament's got the, the there and then, you know, who wrote this, about what time, what are the themes, what are the characters, any literary structures. But then each chapter uh, on every book of the Old Testament has a section, how is this book used in the New Testament? And how is this book used in Catholic tradition? So kind of there and then, but also how has the church received the meaning of this book? And I think that's really where it really comes alive for people. Um, you know, sometimes you get lost in names and genealogies and things like that. But when you start to read the Bible as a whole, and you read it from the standpoint of the New Testament, of uh, you know, the fullness of Revelation Jesus Christ, and you see how it all leads up to him and pours out forth in sacred tradition, in the church, in the liturgy, that's when I think it gets more exciting for people. So to kind of do both there and then, historically, you know, literarily, what's going on in the ancient context, but also how has the meaning of this been received by the New Testament and by the sacred tradition of, of the church? Yeah, one thing that um, my old boss, Bishop Barron, used to say a lot is we need to re-Judaize Christianity, right? Really better to better understand Jesus, but also, uh, I mean, I, I'm not Jewish of descent or, or, yeah. or, or anything, but we still our brothers and sisters on that same, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, trajectory of, of the salvific mission of Christ. Yes. Um, so to better understand the Jewish heritage and, and the roles that they played in our life, you know, in the here and now is incredibly important. I could not agree more. And it helps so many things. We have to kind of knock that anti-Semitic uh, sentiment out of ourselves. You know, Pius uh, the 11th said spiritually we're all Semites. Um, and one of the most powerful things about scholarship recently, last 30, 40 years with the Dead Sea Scrolls is to really, you know, putting Jesus and Paul and all back in their Jewish context. Uh, I mean, how many times have you heard something like this, you know, or even popularly, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Jesus was anti-priestly, anti-ritual, anti-sacramental, anti, you know, he was really just, uh, you know, a, a liberal hippie telling us to love people, right? I mean, like, this is like in the water, but what's behind that so often is an, is an anti-Semitic sentiment that, that refuses to see Jesus in his Jewish context. And let me just go back to the Exodus. I mean, what's the goal of the Exodus? What's the book of Exodus all about? It's not just political liberation. The goal of the Exodus terminates in worship, in liturgy, in liturgical communion with God. And once you start to see that, and you see that, gosh, Leviticus is not just a bunch of 
ran, I mean, when she sees sacrifice, this ritualized self-offering, this moves, to, and, and then when you have Christ, you have the most perfect, because this union of what is offered and the offerer. But my point is this, if Jesus brings about a new exodus, it doesn't culminate simply in political liberation, obviously, or even just this kind of blithe, you know, forgiveness of sins. It culminates in worship, in liturgy, and even ancient Jews, you see some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, were hoping for a messianic banquet, and it's modeled off of the Sinai banquet. So they come out of Egypt, get the, the you know, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, they're at Mount Sinai in, in chapter 19. 24, Moses, Nadab, and Abihu and 70 elders go up on the top of Sinai. And that, that's like going into heaven, going to God's presence. And they have this sacred banquet meal in the presence of God. And many ancient Jews, you see this in Isaiah 25, you see it among other Jewish writings, are hoping that in the Messianic age, it'll be inaugurated by this, this, this Messianic banquet meal in the presence of God. And they say things like, this is in Isaiah 25, verse 6 through 8, it'll be accompanied by wine. It'll overcome sin and death. And what's happened at the Last Supper? So my point is, once you see Jesus in his Jewish backdrop, you see that the priestly Jesus, the liturgical Jesus, the Catholic Jesus is also the Jewish Jesus. That's the historical Jesus. So like I agree a thousand percent, and I think it's so important because then you, you start to realize, gosh, this kind of, because often that anti-Jewish flavor is a cipher for, frankly, Protestant anti-Catholic. Like the Jews become a cipher for the Catholics who are later priestly and liturgical and sacramental and ritualistic and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, no, no. This is part of the dynamic of the scriptures going back to the exodus and moving forward. And mean, you know, now, did some of the ancient Jews get this wrong? Well, yeah, but, but many of them got this right. And then you start to see that, again, the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, the Jewish Jesus is the Catholic Jesus. Yeah. It reminds me, honestly, of, um, so Edmund Burke, he has this great line about how roots and understanding your history, without that, you don't know even who you are, truly. And so as big as the Catholic world is, if, yeah. unless we truly understand where it came from, especially because we often tend to, uh, to tie Christianity with something of the West, but actually, if yeah. you really understand where yeah. it truly came from, it's from the East. Um, and it thrives in the West, it thrives in the East as well, but um, it's an interesting kind of much bigger view of what's going on uh, here. But I also, I really like that you've kind of emphasized, you know, I, I, one of my favorite theologians, Joseph Ratzinger, and a big thing that he, uh, he appreciated the historical critical method, but he also always wanted us to understand the spiritual lessons right. that, are, that are involved in here, that there's something else going on here more than just the dates. You need to know the dates, you need right. to know the authors, because it gives you really the truth of what's going on but the, the depth of what's happening here. So what are some of the kind of spiritual highlights that, that when doing your research here? Well, and, and you know, not to go back to the Exodus again, but so many of the spiritual writers, like the, 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 the mystics, John of the Cross, I mean, and, and we look at the lectionary readings, we go in Lent, we go back into the Exodus, we go back to the wilderness because it's sort of like the template of salvation, right? And for the ancient fathers, I mean, Pharaoh is sort of like an image of Satan. We're in bondage to sin, in bondage to slavery, uh, and we need redemption. Um, and, and we're wandering in this wilderness period um, right now, right? And, and, and the manna, for example, is the, and this is what, I mean, our father, give us this day our daily bread, like any first century Jew hearing about daily bread, bread that falls daily, like this is the manna. This is a prayer for the new manna. And the manna is precisely that bread for after the Exodus en route to the promised land. And the manna actually ceases in Joshua 5.12. It stops when they get there. Just as now we've gone through a new Exodus with the cross and we are in a new wilderness wandering and the new manna, the Eucharist, is the bread for the journey after the exodus, en route to the ultimate promised land. And right now, the new man of the Eucharist, it is the reality, it is Jesus. But when we get there, it'll give way to face-to-face -to -face communion. So um, the exodus, when we read it spiritually, when we read it in light of what Christ has done, in light of our experience in the church liturgically, uh, it's, it's the template of salvation moving from Egypt to the promised land. And the promised land is not just land, that's a type of heaven. And why is the promised land the holy land? Because that's where God dwells in the temple. It all culminates, once again, in that liturgical communion um, with our Lord. And the Eucharist, in a real way, becomes new temple. Whenever I receive our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, I'm walking up. I always say the words that Jesus said about himself in Matthew 12, something greater than the temple is here. For a first century Jew, what could be greater than the temple than God himself? And our Lord's like, that's exactly my point. And as I go to approach our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, I say to myself, something greater than the temple is here. Mm. That's awesome. 
One of the things I, I honestly love about the Old Testament in particular is a lot of these just huge characters, these historical figures that we can emulate our lives on, the, the courage, the tenacity, the strength, yeah. but also the fear looking at like Job, the life that <laughs> all of us experience, you know, at some point in our life. Um, and especially, I mean, King David and Samson and a lot of these guys that, gosh, I mean, they just, they're these huge historical figures that give a, a narrative to help us better understand certain situations in our own life, of being able to look to them yeah. as, oh, I can you know, model something after them. I think sometimes as Catholics, we, we forget some of the Old Testament figures yeah. that, that they too, much like the saints, are people that we can look to yeah. to, to live our lives in, in accord with. Yeah, I mean, too often we think of it just like random kids' Bible stories, right? Um, just these random disconnected stories. We lose sight of the overarching unified narrative is one problem. Uh, but, but two, you know, like, to your point, do we really take seriously uh, what's there? I mean, like I think about the great Catholic men's program, That Man Is You, takes their name from the encounter between Nathan and David after David's famous, you know, incident with, with Bathsheba. Uh, and, and, and men, the old, you know, and, and um, you know, your old boss, Bishop Barron, used to say this a lot. I mean, the Bible knows the reality of sin very, very well. I mean, I joke with my teenage boy, you know, sons, I mean, like, uh, as they've come of age and like really getting into this, like, man, <laughs> no R-rated movie holds a candle next to the Old Testament. I mean, it, it knows the reality of human dysfunction, uh, of, of great heroism, but also great depravity. I mean, even you know, when you read Genesis closely, I mean, my students in my Penta class is like, I didn't know all this was there. You know, you read the encounter of like right in the middle of the Joseph story, like Judah, uh, which is so, he's such an interesting figure in that whole movement from Genesis 37 to 50. Uh, and Genesis 38 sort of like his low point where he ends up sleeping and impregnating his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Uh, but then as you move through the Joseph narrative, you actually see him rise as, as, as in many ways a Christ-like leader uh, chapters 43 and 44, where he's willing to take the place of Benjamin, who's been enslaved. And, and, and so you see this, this ebb and flow, this, you know, like Narnia. I mean, like, I uh, think of Edmund and Eustace and Narnia, if I'm a big Narnia fan, but like there's, a, there's an arc. Like they come, they, they start out like terrible and they become heroic. And I think when you really read the Old Testament, even just as literature closely, you'll see this everywhere. And then you start to realize this didn't happen on Middle Earth. Like you can visit these same cities. Like this is, this is, this is real people. This is real stuff. This is our family heritage um, to read. And, you know, the senses of scripture, uh, the literal, the uh, you know allegorical, moral, and agogical. I mean, the whole point of that is to read the there and then, in light of the here and now, and to see myself in the story, and then to see the Bible as like a mirror to my own life. Yes. Yeah, and one really interesting thing that, that's happening right now is you've got the Jordan Peterson phenomena of people reading it psychologically, of, of the, the psychological right. process. Right. And, and that is truly a sense of a way to read it, right? It's, right. it's a way to understand ourselves. I don't think he goes far enough sure. because it's not just a psychological <laughs> thriller. It's a true narrative. Right. Um, but one thing that, that people tend to look at the Old Testament and they see all the war, all of the, right. you know, lots of fighting, lots <laughs> of battles, commands from God that seem a little bit strange. Yeah. You know, what do you say to people that say, you know, well, there's the God of the Old Testament and then there's the God of Jesus Christ. Right. What's the answer there? You know, St. Augustine wrestled with this exact same issue uh, toward the end of book five of the Confessions. Uh, he basically acknowledges that the Old Testament was one of his stumbling blocks to coming back to the faith. And it was uh, St. Ambrose who teaching him how to read the Old Testament spiritually was like a key, key moment for him to even really entertain the prospects of coming coming back. That's a big part of it is, is I think too often, um, you know, the, the great axiom from St. Augustine quoted in the Catechism of, about typology that the New Testament, the New Covenant is concealed in the Old and the Old is revealed in the New. Now how? Well, the Old is revealed in the New because the Old sets up types or foreshadowings, persons, places, events, institutions, that prefigure greater realities to come in the news. So whether it's Adam and Jesus, Eve and Mary, the manna and the new manna, Passover, let me go down the line, Isaac, et cetera, David, uh, temple, liturgy. You know. um, so I think that is, is key to realize, you know, like as Hebrews 10, 1 says, that the, the old, uh, the law was a shadow of the reality to come. So I think that is really, really important to realize we're on the way and to not be afraid to read it spiritually. Um, the promised land, once you see that it becomes a type, a figure of heaven itself, then you realize the battles fought to attain the promised land 
become images of the spiritual struggles we all must undergo to attain the ultimate promised land. So I think don't be afraid to read it that way. I think that's really important. I think part of you know what you mentioned earlier with 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 um, with Ratzinger, um, I think sometimes our view of history, and this this gets into you know thick waters, but um, sometimes the kind of Enlightenment rationalism and fundamentalism are kind of flip sides of the same coin because they're, they're fixated on the meaning of the text, the meaning of it is in the past. If I could kind of dig behind the history of the text as I have it, I'll find the truth of it. And for the Enlightenment rationalists, because well, that none of this happened or blah, blah, blah. And then for the fundamentalists, because this is how it, this is a, this is a like a film recording, you know, play by play of exact, you know, whether it's the creation account or what have you. And what, one analogy I've used, um, you know, you, you watch sports, you know, whether it's, um, well, back in the day, Jim Nance and Tony Romo, or, you know, you have the play-by-play and the color commentator, and biblical history very much blends those voices into one. Tells you not just what happened, but simultaneously the, the, the meaning of what happened, and often telling you what happened, but in symbolic categories. Like, yes, it, these things really happened, um, but we're not just fixated on did it happen, but what's the divine meaning and interpretation of what went down. So I think, to me, that's you. So I think, number one, don't be afraid to read, read spiritually. Uh, number two, realize that as you move through the Old Testament, you are, God's revelation is gradual. The fullness is in Christ. So you're, you're on the way, and God's got to meet his people where they are. So just to give you an example, Ezekiel 40 to 48, Ezekiel's prophecy, his, you know, his book, ends with this eschatological temple and gives a lot of details. And Ezekiel is prophesying to a people at a certain time, but also through that time and beyond it to the fullness of time, to, to Christ and beyond and in the church. But how is he gonna communicate this in a certain time period? It's gonna to have to be in categories that they can understand. So God has to meet his people where they are in a time and a culture that's very different than our own. We have to be sensitive to that. Uh, and, and then you can start to kind of see clues that, okay, well, Ezekiel is given all these details. And some people are going to say, oh, it's a physical temple that the Messiah is going to rebuild. And da, da, da. But then you realize by the time you get to chapter 47, oh, there's this water coming from the sanctuary flowing into the Dead Sea and making all these things come alive in the Dead Sea where nothing can live there. And, it's, and you realize the hydrology of the Holy Land could never support this there's something more happening here. But then you might be like, why all these details? Well, because again, he's got to speak to a people in their own day, in language and categories and images that they can understand, but using those images to point beyond themselves. Some of the things in the Old Testament, weird customs, what's going on here? Again, God, God didn't drop down an idea. He could have said, here's some Platonic philosophy, go, go play. No, he encountered people in time and space. And to do that means there's going to be a historical conditionness to that encounter. God is going to have to use images, idioms, categories uh, that his people can understand and use that to move them to where he wants them to go. Another example is the laws about slavery, right? Like we're like, why is this here at all? And as we should. Uh, but then when you realize, and this is where the historical critical thing can be helpful, put it back in its own context. Slavery was ubiquitous. Uh, you do see indication when you compare um, some of that legislation to the surrounding context, there is at points, again, this is not perfect, but there's a, at points an effort to mitigate uh, some of the, the, the severity of it, um, to, for, for slaves to be freed after, after, after seven years, um, to protect female slaves. I mean, in words, you need to put it in its own context, read it, not in light of 21st century you know, West, but how is God encountering and engaging a people in that period to bring them to where we are now. But again, to go back to the first point, the ultimate context of the whole of scripture is reading it from within the living tradition of the church. Don't be afraid to read it in light of the spiritual senses. This has been at home. The New Testament writers do this. The church didn't make this up. The New Testament writers do this and the church fathers follow that lead right away. Man, there's a lot there. I think that um, one thing that we have slowly unfortunately forgotten is the mystical tradition of scripture, the mystical tradition of the East, yes. the mystical tradition of the Catholicism in general, yes. that, that enlightenment rationalism has snuck in in yeah. a lot of ways. And things that don't quite make sense when you look at them, you know, through a rationalistic right. perspective, 
when you take a step back and think about this in a truly mystical way, and, and sadly, I mean, in the modern West, we don't really have mysticism, you know, as it has always been. We're afraid and of mystery. We're very afraid of it. And, and we don't trust it, right? Because it's not something that we can scientifically right. uh, analyze. And so therefore it's not something we can control. Therefore right. we're afraid of it. Um, and so we, we forget that. And I think that sometimes when I try to read scripture, I really try to read it through the mystical tradition of, of what does this mean yeah. in a much bigger sense and, and way beyond something that I'm gonna fully understand. It's good for me to know, as you said, the facts along the way and why a resource like this is, is so important to help us better understand that. Uh, but in light of that is understanding the mystical side of what's going on here and what God's trying to do uh, through people. So, for example, I mean, one of my, uh, one question I get a lot is of the, the idea of in the Old Testament, especially whenever they would go to war and they would wipe out entire peoples, right, and, and kill their cows and their <laughs> kill everything. There's one way to read it, which is, gosh, what a brutal type of thing. Right. Not that we're less brutal now. We just don't. <laughs> we just cover it we just, up. We just cover it up now. Um, same thing with slavery. It's like, well, we're not less brutal now. That's still going on all over the world. Um, but it's, it's a way of understanding in the mystical tradition of there are things in this world that have to be wiped out with relentless, relentless brutality. And right. oftentimes that's in here. It's our souls. What, what is going on inside of me that I need to attack and right. literally cut it out completely? Um, and so, yeah, there is kind of like the, the reality of war and stuff like that, which that, again, has not stopped. Um, but there's a lot of that to better understand ourselves and right. what's going on internally. And isn't that, I mean, doesn't that make reading the Bible so much more exciting? Yes. It becomes a living word that can, that can speak to me in the present. It's not just a dead letter about the past. I mean, look at St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, speaking about the wilderness wandering, the Pentateuch, these things that we're talking about. He says, these things were written down for our instruction. Mm -hmm. So this is how the church has always read the scriptures. And it's really important for Catholics to get this. Uh, because this is when it really comes alive. This is what it's, I mean, this is what, um, this is where we can encounter. This is the Father Mike's podcast. I mean, this is why people are excited to read scripture. It's not just to learn a history lesson. It's to see our story and to see our lives in that great story and to see how it's still unfolding today. Yes. And I think, too, sometimes there's also a bit of a historical snobbery uh, that occurs. Uh, we look at past traditions and past, past cultures. People say the same things about Aristotle and many others when it comes to this kind of language. Yeah. Um, and it's like, do you really think we've progressed much further than Genesis? I mean, we're just as, as yeah. messed up. As, as we always have been. And, and the beauty of something like scripture and the beauty of this long Catholic tradition that includes the Old Testament is being able to learn from those cultures and be able to learn from these past histories that if you ignore them, it's to your own peril, ultimately, right? Yeah, no, and you, you mentioned Ratzinger. One of the, my things that I really love that he pounded quite a bit is the need to renew the marriage of Jerusalem and Athens. Right, so you mentioned getting back into our Jewish roots, and, and, and yes, and the church fathers often said there are two preparations for the gospel, the Old Testament and Greek philosophy. And so to kind of bring these worlds together, faith and reason in this grand synthesis with maybe a healthy tension at times, uh, you know, Rotson used to say that, um, you know, reason needs faith, otherwise it'll close in on itself, it'll just, you know, say nothing exists but what I can quantify and measure. But faith also needs reason because without reason, faith can become superstitious, faith, right? So, it, it, and it's this integration that we need to recover, which is at the heart of that Catholic tradition you're talking about. Yes, and it, it creates a human fully alive. That's, that's one of my favorite things of Augustine is when, when these things come together and you live according to the tradition and, and according to the life of Christ, it's about us being more fully human, right? All the gifts we've been given, the charisms we've been given, they come out ever more fully whenever we follow these things and, and really do the work necessary to, to do it, but you have to know the stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amen, amen. And yes, yes, I mean, this is, this is front and center of Vatican II, of Wojtyla, JP II, that Jesus fully reveals God to us, but he also fully reveals what it means to be human to us, uh, this Christian humanism. Have you ever desired a deeper understanding of the life of Jesus? Check out The Extraordinary Story with Tom Hoops, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. The Extraordinary Story has been featured in The Loop, Alatea, Our Sunday Visitor, and Relevant Radio. 
You can listen to The Extraordinary Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And now, back to the show. Yeah, so now I want to ask you a little bit about yourself. Um, so have you always been a Bible guy and, and uh, <laughs> nerded out on this kind of stuff, or has this uh, been a process? It's been a process. Uh, I mean, I grew up Catholic, uh, but kind of a name only. It didn't really mean much to me growing up. Uh, and I actually uh, came to Benedictine College, where I now teach, uh, many, many eons ago as a student. And I came for only one reason, and that was to play football. I uh, came from uh, the Buckeye State of Ohio, and uh, you know, you grow up dreaming about being a Buckeye, and you realize, well, you're good, but you're not, you're not quite that good. And you take the next best thing you can. And uh, yeah, I just had my life, my world changed here. Uh, I, I encountered the Lord in a profound way, in a way I never had before. And, and one of the things that happened was uh, I had a key professor who taught here for many years, Dr. Edward Sri, and he helped me connect Jesus to the story of Israel and connect Jesus and Israel to the church. Because it's so easy to be like, oh, I love Jesus, church, ah. But he would say things like, you can't love the king and hate the kingdom. You can't love the groom and hate the bride. Uh, and to kind of see that connection was key to the kind of beginnings of my conversion. Uh, so that's where I think where my love of scripture began. Um, and um, yeah, I went off and did, I did a master's in Old Testament Semitic languages and fell in love with Hebrew and Greek and the languages. And, uh, but I also love St. Thomas, I love philosophy. So I was always, I always kind of lived in these two worlds. I loved the nitty gritty of the scriptures and the languages and the history, but I also never wanted to lose philosophy and theology and, and, and reading it in this integrative way. And I think we've captured that in, in this book. I think that's been part of the ethos of what we were trying to do. What does knowing the ancient languages, how, how does that help? Like what, what, what did yeah. you get out of that that you hope others are able to experience? Well, I think studying Hebrew, and I did Aramaic as well, it's a quick way to recover that Semitic context. Even the New Testament, even though it's written in Greek, you basically have Semitic writers. And, and very often you see Semitic idiom and even Semitic grammar, even though they're Greek letters. Uh, I'll just give you one like easy example. When Matthew says, uh, in Matthew like 121, uh, you know, Jesus, his name will be his name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He's thinking in Hebrew idiom because it's a wordplay. His name will be Yeshua because he will Yasha. So Yasha is the, is, is the verbal root that means to save, but it doesn't work in Greek. His name will be Jesus because he will sozo. No, Matthew's thinking, in, if you follow me. So, so I think it's, it's um, now it's not magic. It just takes you one step closer, uh, but it, it, it helps, it's helped me to enter the kind of cultural world of not just like what are, what's the dictionary definition of this word but how does this word feel what is the connotation behind this what does this word mean based on where it shows up in many other places and stories that would be kind of evocative if that makes sense uh, like a word like righteousness tzedakah or mishpat justice these words have kind of like a loaded meaning often that you can feel more if that makes sense even palpably even affectively that that i wouldn't get by just reading it english if that makes sense that's interesting. It sounds like a really interesting blend of, of East and West. You know, I'm, I'm just fascinated yeah, by, yeah. by how East and West, you know, work together. And yeah. um, we, we've been so formed in the Western tradition yeah. of being able to think philosophically, but sometimes yeah. that breaks down whenever yeah. you're talking about mystical matters. Yeah. And sometimes in the East, I think this is one reason why people get attracted to Buddhism is because they've never really experienced the mystical tradition of, of Christianity and yeah. they experience something in, in the East. So when you have, especially something like language, mm -hmm. which is at such the, the heart of, gosh, what it means to be human, like, right? our ability to articulate what we're about um, that you really can't get unless you understand that he Hebrew and, and Greek side of things. Well, the mystery of language itself. I mean, like, like, like animals communicate. Yeah, and I've seen all the dolphins here. I, I, I get it, but they don't talk about, they don't use similes and metaphors. They don't translate from one language to another. They don't talk about quarks and black holes and angels. I mean, there's something unique about the human intellect that gives rise to language, uh, which is just a, a you know, and you think about translating like an English sentence to a, you know, to a German equivalent, like there's nothing about the physical marks of this ink that is equal to that ink. It's the meaning that these symbols convey is equivalent to the, where's the meaning located? Is it in the ink or is it in the mind, right? So, it, so yeah, I think at a philosophical level, language fascinates me. Uh, but then I think in terms of, you mentioned earlier, I mean, like nobody comes from nowhere. We all come from somewhere. Um, languages and the way languages move and change and evolve like this is all part of our 
our human history, our the history of salvation, of God interacting with us, uh, all peoples, but, it's, but certainly in terms of his election and choosing uh, a people, you know, Abraham forth and, and Israel for the sake of the whole world, right? It's never, I think that's part of the problem. So we think, well, God, why did God choose Israel? Well, he didn't choose Israel in spite of the nations. In fact, when you read closely throughout the scriptures, the story of Israel is inherently wrapped up with all the nations. And so when Jesus actually, I mean, this gets into a bigger theme, um, but what he brings about the full restoration and the climax of the story of Israel, it inherently includes the nations. And even when St. Paul is going to the Corinthians and all these Gentiles, and I know we don't have time to fully develop this, he actually thinks he's bringing about the culmination of the story of Israel, which de facto and inherently includes all the nations. Because the great hope of Israel was for the nations to convert, to leave their gods of wood and stone and gold and silver, and to come to worship and praise the God of Israel. What are you and I doing? Us goyim, us Gentiles, worshiping the God of Israel in the face of Jesus Christ. Man, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of, um, you know, Aristotle's really known for saying we're political animals, right? Uh, but later philosophers have said that we're storytelling animals, that, that we have to live in a narrative or else we just don't make sense, which is why we tell stories, yes. why we create these stories. Yes. And when it comes to scripture, it is the truest story that we're participating in. Yes. And it's interesting that God revealed these things and, and to future generations, it's, it's a narrative. It's something that we're participating in. Um, maybe say a little bit about how story itself really forms a lot of that. You're exactly right. I mean, it's for so many today, life is a story with no plot. You give your life meaning. You, you be yourself. You express yourself. And then Rothschild's got a great line in Introduction to Christianity. He says, meaning that is self-made is at the end of the day, no meaning at all. If it's simply my fabrication, it's, I know deep down it's hollow. What we long for is meaning that's received. Um, ultimately from the Lord, and, and, and that we have a part to play in this great story. So I, I, you're exactly right. And I think for, whether it's as Catholics, uh, as people of the West, uh, people in the U.S., we've lost our story, and we don't know who we are. We don't know where we've come from. We don't know where we're going, and consequently, we don't know who we are. So I, I think this is, you talk about like raising kids. I mean, one of my, one of my most favorite memories as a dad, I've got six kids, um, 17 to two months right now, um, is reading to them, reading great stories to them. I didn't even realize at the time, but like they, it, like reading Narnia, for example, but I mean, but there's so many great stories, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, yeah, but, but even beyond that, but it gave them a medium to think about things that were beyond them. Uh, the, I remember, you know, one of my sons was like, well, so what are demons? I'm like, well, you know, orcs, they're kind of like corrupted elves. Oh, I get it, Dad. Right off and play. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, and then one of them one time said to me, because my, my line was always this. They would say, is this real? And I'd say, well, it's not real, but it teaches us about something that is real. And I was trying to get them to think typologically. Like, like this is, you know, this is teaching you about something that is real, uh, even though we're not going to go, like, find Narnia next door. And then one day, one of my sons goes, no, no, Dad, Narnia is real. I'm like, oh, we've been through this. It, 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 it's not real, but it teaches us about something that is real. He's like, no, no, you get there through the wardrobe of death. I'm like, what just happened? And, but, but his, his whole, I mean, in other words, it triggered things in them that I couldn't have, like, concocted on my own, but it's just the power of story. And they're like, you know, the wardrobe it takes you to Narnia. Narnia is like an image of heaven. Death is this door, this gateway. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, but it, it, the power of story to shape their moral and spiritual imagination affectively at the emotional level that tills the groundwork for catechesis and intellectual engagement later on, to me, has been one of the most powerful things that I, I kind of came to as a dad almost on accident, but I'm just so grateful for it. So, yeah, I, I, we've lost our story. We need story. We need to know who we are. Um, and whether that's liturgy, art, study, I mean, like, who are we? Uh, we've got to recover that, and we will not do so unless we reclaim the fundamental story of creation, redemption, salvation. Yeah. It was told to me once that if you are a connoisseur of literature, you, you end up living a thousand lives because you've 
lived through these characters. You've lived through, you know, the mistakes that they've That's made, true. the freedoms that they've earned, the, the grace that they've experienced. Um, and so when it comes to the Old Testament, getting back yeah. to, to that part of our conversation, gosh, you, you talk about learning so much about human nature, about where our story is and yeah. how we play a role in that. Um, and what I love about, especially the Old Testament, is that you've got a lot of people that make a lot of mistakes. Right. <laughs> and we all make mistakes. It's called sin. Right. That's the that's the reality of it. Um, but you see through those actions and through those mistakes, God is still finding his way to work through it. He's he's putting together a story that's much bigger than ourselves. So even though we're fallen creatures, even though we make these incredible horrible mistakes and we, we harm each other, we do all kinds of stuff, God is still working. God is still pushing us towards ultimately salvific, you know, uh, life in Christ. Um, and so what I love about literature especially, and, and again, to, to think of, of the Old Testament more in a literary perspective, uh, is that it, it, it forms the mind in what it means to be human and human nature. And to your point, we've lost that today. And it seems to me like people, because of that, we've lost what it means to be human. We've lost our, our yeah. human nature. And, what is the, if you don't know your nature ultimately, you know, you, you end up becoming beasts yeah. again, right? I, mean, I just think about how, you know, we think of history. I mean, I think of my, my father-in-law, for example, I, when he talks about it, you know, he has a great love of history. And, um, and I think this was, a, this was an older approach to history. You study history not just to recover, even today is true, it's not just to recover the facts. I mean, what you think is important from the past has a lot to do with what you think is important now. It has a lot to do with the present as well. And when my father-in-law would speak about history, it was often about lessons we derive from history. Whereas I think so often now it's either, look how terrible we were, right? And there's no need to like whitewash things. Um, look how ter you know, terrible things were and how great things are now. Um, or it's just like a million pages of footnotes um, it, this kind of hyper, uh, kind of empiricist, um, all we want to know is just the facts. And I get that that's important. It's kind of like our question with the Bible, like the historical critical thing and then what's it mean? But I think part of it's how we think of history and why history is important and why kids often today don't care for it. Because if we just present it as random, disconnected facts, it's not their story. It doesn't have to do with who they are. It doesn't impact them existentially in the present. I think analogously, reading scripture the same way. It's not just about the past, it's about knowing where we came from, what we can learn, uh, and, and how we can you know, play our part in this great story. I mean, history is never just about the past, it's, all, it's always also about the present. That's why sometimes you have different generations will evaluate previous historical epics differently because the generations have changed. For better or for worse, the perspective has changed. And I think we're naive to think that that's not the case. Um, I think there's a need to recover history, uh, certainly biblical history, in a way that's, again, not, not naive, not uh, inaccurate, um, not whitewashing, but really seeing that the meaning of history is about our need to know where we came from, who we are, uh, and, and to learn moral lessons from the past. Like, is that a dirty word? I mean, this is why people loved history back in the day. I mean, hundreds of years ago, and part of the Enlightenment view of histori historiography is like, no, no, not that. We gotta get to the facts. It's like, well, I, we can do a little bit of both, but let's not throw the you know baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. What's cool too is you you see yourself in these characters, right? So I always think of you know George Washington really loved uh, Cincinnatus, the great uh, general of, of Rome, and he considered himself a new Cincinnatus. Like he considered himself doing something. Of course, he's on a much grander level than most people in human history will ever do. Uh, but to think of yourself of wow, if he was able to accomplish this, or she was able to go out and, and you know conquer the world in this way, yeah. I too can do it because they're made of the same stuff, right? <laughs> Doesn't that make you want to study history? Yes. I mean, and, but you, you know, David thinks of himself as a new Melchizedek. He's a new priest king of Jerusalem, as Melchizedek was a priest king of Salem. Yes, yes, and yes, you're exactly right. Yeah. So what would you like your readers to get out of this? Do you want them to use this uh, in groups, individual study, a little bit of both? Where, where would you like people to take that? I, I think it's ideal for adult faith formation. Uh, I plan to use it in my college classes. I think um, certain high schools, I think high schoolers could read it. Again, it's, it's thorough, but it really is accessible. I mean, even, even you know, chapters on Leviticus, it's not overwhelming. So I, I think becoming biblically fluent and literate, to see the breadth of scripture, the breadth of the Old Testament, again, both the there and then, and the here and now. So it's not just a history lesson just for the sake of knowing, you know, 
Well, so the, what was the Ola sacrifice again? What was the, what, you know, what was the Asham and the Chata? Uh, it, it's not, it's about reading the old, always in light of Christ, in light of who we are. So I think in terms of becoming biblically fluent and literate, and, 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 and frankly, I think when you get Catholics reading the scriptures prayerfully and in groups and Bible studies, and also the catechism, reading scripture from the heart of the church and seeing doctrine and scripture go back and forth. I think that is, I found it to be just a potent, explosive combination uh, for well-formed Catholics, because I think today it's not enough just to be orthodox. It's not enough just to have the right answers. Like you've got to foster conviction. Uh, I don't think you're gonna make it, and if if it's not you, your kids won't make it alive without conviction. C.S. Lewis has got a great line about faith. He says, neither this belief nor any other will remain alive unless it's fed. Um, and I think it's true. I mean, have people walk away from the faith and sometimes there's an abrupt moment, but sometimes there's a slow and steady drift. And five years, I was like, I don't know how I got here, but I just don't believe anymore. Well, did you do anything to foster your faith? Did you just drink the Kool-Aid around you? And I think to, to really be studying scripture with good resources from the heart of the church you know, and, and, and be formed in the catechism, liturgically, sacramentally. I've just found this to be a very, very potent combination. I think, too, if I could add, I mentioned the apologetics movement, and it's still alive and well, and it's great, but Henri de Lubac had a great line. This kind of gets back to our East and West discussion. He said, it's a real pity to learn your catechism against someone. It's a real pity to learn your catechism against someone, and I think the danger if all you're thinking about is apologetics, like, well, when they say this, I say this. It's like, if you really know who you are, if you really know your faith and scripture and tradition, you'll be able to answer whatever you need to answer. But to pass the faith on in a way that's joyful, that's proud of who we are, that is ready to engage and and respond to negative things, but isn't focused on the negative first, like, no, no, I'm running to Jesus and this is the truth. And if we're formed powerfully in that way, we'll be able to answer the questions that come along as opposed to letting, because Dulux's point was this. If you learn your catechism against someone, you let the interlocutor set the agenda. And you end up, here's his point, you end up truncating the mystery because you emphasize only what the other person is denying. And you get kind of a uh, distorted view of the faith because you're only kind of, it's, 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 it, you're letting the other, the heretic, if you will, set the agenda. Know the fullness of the faith, enter in it with mind and heart, uh, and then you won't fall into those problems. And we can still answer the questions we need to along the way, but we'll do so from a, you know, not just the whack-a-mole thing, right? From a, from a posture of joy and peace and confidence. It's not defensive. I think there's too much defensiveness where we're anxious. Um, we don't need to be anxious. Jesus won the war. He's given us the fullness of truth. Uh, let's dig into it and dig into the mystery, which is, endless and bottomless yes which gets right back to a need to return to the mystical tradition of that within the mystical tradition it's not combative against another yeah. right it's and about it us, us coming together exactly you gotta pray <laughs> exactly. you gotta pray you can't just study your way into heaven you gotta know jesus that's awesome well now to really switch gears i wanted to make sure during this conversation we talk about something we're both pretty passionate about i know you've become quite the avid practitioner in brazilian jiu-jitsu so uh, <laughs> talking about combativeness uh getting into a compete competitive arena um what what was your introduction to bjj and and what's that been like oh i i love it i absolutely love it i pray uh, god willing to be a, a lifer uh, my whole family is involved down to my four-year-old uh, and i've seen what it's done for them and if you don't know bjj it's, it's kind of like wrestling but plus joint locks and submissions and chokes and things like that and um i mean there is a the self-defense thing i think was the motivator initially and that's still there i think i mean i, I think um if it's one-on-one and there's no weapons involved i think bjj is is lethal um, but if all you want is self-defense, probably, you know, carrying a gun, to be honest with you, right? And, and what I've really kind of seen is what, it's become a spiritual journey. It's become, I mean, yes, there's a self-defense part, but it's, you know, can you be comfortable in uncomfortable spots? Can you learn to not panic when your breath is being choked out? Can you, and this is what I see my, my kids t- down the line, they'll say, what have you gained from this? Confidence, like a deep confidence that's, you know, I know how I've grown. Like we don't have... You think about crafts or musical instrument, language, things that when you practice, you get better at, you know, work with your hands. Uh, it has that feel because you can, you can, you can, you get more and more fluid. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I played team sports all my life, but there's something about like, I did that. Like, like I, I couldn't do this before. And now I, 
you know, and, and the thing about BJJ is size and strength doesn't hurt. But when you first start, you see people that are skilled, that are half your size. I mean, they just destroyed me. Like, I mean, it was, and even my kids, like, I mean, my teenage boys can both take me. They, and I got 70 pounds on them. My 12-year-old daughter, I can go 80, 90%, and I can't submit her. I mean, because like, she knows what she's doing. So to me, like for me growing up, I was, you know, for a while, it was like, how much can you bench press? It was this kind of like macho, and like, I love BJ, because I love the art. I love the kind of anti-macho-ness. It's like, no, no, it's a skill. It's like a boa constrictor. It's going to like, you know, you might not see it coming, but bam, now you're out. Um, and, you know, one thing I'll say too is I have almost never seen someone talk trash in practice or at a tournament uh, because there's like a respect factor just by your opponent doing this, that it's just a, it's just a different culture than I grew up with, you know, football and the varsity blues movie hey, things like that that, that um and so I, I really wanted this for my kids i love it um one of our good our mutual friends dr james madden uh philosopher he got into it so he was kind of my link i mean he, you know i saw what it did for him and his kids and i finally said i'm in i'm in and so we're about uh, you know gonna come up on three years uh soon and um just absolutely love it. Yeah, I love that there is a spiritual component to it because one of the things that we struggle with as human beings is the need to control everything. And the whole philosophy within martial arts of empty your mind, of being able to do these things as in second nature because you've, you've re repeated them so many times that now your hand finds certain places, you, you know how to grab certain things certain ways without even thinking about it. And I remember having a conversation actually with, with Madden uh, about this, about how he, I, I mentioned you know, the idea of chess around that. He says it's actually not like chess. It's, it's much more just becomes second nature. That if you're, if you're thinking too much, you will find yourself in a hold and, and hurt. Um, and so the beauty of that is that it flows right into our spiritual life, I think, because we want to control what God is doing for us so often and the ability to physically tell yourself, you're not in control, man. Like, relax, you know, do the work, do the repetitions, say your prayers, get those repetitions in, but understand that along the way, it, it needs to become second nature and it needs to just flow, yeah. you know, how to, how to tap into that flow. Uh, because when you first start, it's all grip and you're, you're sore all over because you're holding on oh, so yeah. tight. <laughs> and then years later, you're like, wow, I, I have a couple bruises, but I'm, my muscles are, are used to oh, this now. I got hurt way more often the first six months <laughs> than that because you're just trying to like, brute strength everything. Yeah. And, you know, um, our, our, our friend Jim, uh, he likes to say, well, the, you know, the enemy gets a vote, right? So it's, uh, you can kind of calculate it, but like you have to react to what they're doing and feel their momentum. And to me, our Lord is the great jujitsu artist, right? I mean, here comes evil on the cross and he turns it against itself, which is, that's what BJJ is all about. It's not about like, I'm going to just brute strength this. I'm going to take your momentum, your balance, your leaning, whatever it is, and I will turn it against you and tie you in a pretzel without ever throwing a punch, which is, which just boggles my mind. I'm still at the beginning, but, um, yeah, if, I mean, I, if you can't tell, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's, it's also, uh, as guys, uh, but then also girls as well, yeah. is I always say, you know, when we think about Jesus, we often think just purely about the lamb, but he was a lion uh, as well. And so us participating in the competitive nature yeah. on a regular basis, especially a sport like uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is something you can do for your entire life. I mean, I've met guys that are in their late 70s still doing it, you know, and good and really good at it. Right. Masters, right? Um, and so I think that uh, it... it it allows guys, especially guys that, that love sports. I, I you know, grew up playing sports just like you did. And when you get a certain age, some of that's just not possible. But this type of art, gosh, it's something you can do for the rest of your life. It really is. And I think Christians and Catholics sometimes have kind of an you know, ambivalent relationship with the martial arts. And we're kind of, I mean, I, I really think that you're more likely to get hurt on a football field. The, because you're in BJJ, you, you can tap like you get in trouble and you tap and you can shut it off you can't shut off a play in the middle of a kickoff now i'm still a football fan i'm not you know anti but but i i think in terms of and even like even mma um i i you know because we have mma at our gym and i got i've gotten to know those guys and i've got a son that's really interested in mma and um they're they're literally and I'm, I'm sure you can find exceptions where people have been bad sportsmen you know but but like they're not trying to hurt each other like they're trying to get better and they're uh, there's again, like there's such a respect, uh, you know, a book that we talked about, the professor in the cage. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I, I've like things that I, what, what I thought about MMA three or four years ago before I started this and now getting to know those guys, I think totally different about it. And I, I, there's a, 
there's a need for Catholic men to also be men, as we've talked about before. And you can do that in lots of ways. Like this might not be for everyone, um, but I think there's a need to not be afraid of that. And, and you know, we, we outsource so much in our culture, right? Your kid wants to learn ball, you send him to a camp. You, 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 we, you, know, we, you outsource everything, obviously including our law enforcement, as we should. I'm not saying otherwise. But there is something about being able to do some things yourself, or at least knowing that if you absolutely had to, you would know what to do, whether it's CPR, whether, whatever it is. And, and I think this fits right into that, that. And I think what happens with the MMA guys uh, and gals and BJJ is, especially the younger kids too, like you're testing yourself in as safe of an environment as you possibly could. And you really don't have the need to do it on the playground or to do it at you know, the restaurant. I mean, you don't need to go pick up, because like you, you actually have tested yourself. You know what you can do in a pretty violent situation, but in a controlled way, and you kind of get that out of your system and you have that sense of, yeah, I've done that. I've, I've been there before, and if it were to happen, God forbid, again, you're preparing for something you hope never happens, I think you're less likely to just completely flip out and panic because you've you've seen it, you've experienced it in a controlled way, um, you know. And, and I'm not trying to say it's 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 not you're not a soldier, you're not in war. Like I and I would know nothing about bullets flying at me, and I have so much respect for those men and women. Uh, but I just think there's something about testing ourselves in this way that, frankly, I'm not sure that the sports culture fully replicates in the same way. Uh, even something like football, again, I played football for many years. Uh, it didn't do, football did not do this for me and my kids in the same way as BJJ has. Um, so I think we, I don't know, I just think Catholics and Christians, let's not poo-poo it too quickly. Let's not say it's just pagan because there's something in us, I think especially the men, that wants to fight and know that we can fight, doesn't want to pick fights, but knows that, wants to, wants to know that if something went down, we would know what to do. And that maybe we'd be a little bit less afraid when it happens. Again, God forbid. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we could go for a whole other episode uh, just talking about martial arts because there's a lot uh, there as well. But Andrew, this has been an, an absolutely awesome conversation. I really, really appreciate everything you do. Uh, and uh, maybe just tell where people can get the book and, uh, and we'll... Yeah, it's available at uh, ascensionpress.com, ascensionpress.com. Uh, and then my wife and I, uh, we have a ministry, and we have, a, we have this and all of our resources on, uh, at theswaffords.com, theswaffords.com, so for speaking engagements, things like that. But yeah, ascensionpress.com. Well, thanks again, man. You're the best. Yeah, great conversation. Absolutely. Thank, thank you all you. for listening in. Uh, be sure to share this episode around with all of your friends and family. And thank you again, and God bless. We hope you enjoyed the Benedictine Dialogues, a production of Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. To catch all the latest and support our growing platform, visit media.benedictine.edu. And be sure to recommend this show to your friends and family. Help us to transform culture in America, one conversation at a time.